Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this privilege and this honor of gathering together as family this evening in the unity of the faith. Father, thank you for enabling such unity. Thank you for encouraging in it, uh, uh, us in it uh, as individuals and as a congregation. Um, we pray that our light shine in the community even so that this unity might be felt or encouraging to others who might join us uh, at some point who may be long overdue. Uh, we pray also during this uh, Christmas season that uh, we keep our heads on straight and that we're not discouraged by the ridiculousness of this world and what they deem a celebration uh, is really an abomination. We ask for your strength and your encouragement through the Spirit, Father, as we continue to press on in the face of these such things. Uh, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make a, an evening like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, the difficult passage is Grace and Works, Part 25. Um, Scott did a nice job of sort of um, getting us back into the swing of things. We had that four-part series on remembering the grace of our Lord. Uh, it was interesting because as I was reviewing Scott's notes from Tuesday evening's class, I started giggling to myself. And All I can say is that the Spirit must be intent on driving a particular point home, specifically for those of you who are fatigued. Before I even reviewed Scott's lesson, I had written the newest blog, which is, which is titled, I'm Exhausted, Where's the Spirit? You'll get that on Saturday. I'm Exhausted, Where's the Spirit? And I wrote that before I even reviewed Scott's lesson. And so when I began reviewing his lesson uh, this morning, I noticed the Spirit was using both mediums, the blog and the pulpit, to communicate to this congregation Here's an excerpt from Tuesday's lesson up here on the board. Obedience leads to freedom. If you continue in His Word, the truth will set you free. John 8.31-32 This is especially true when you are a doer of the truth. It will set you free, deliver you in your daily walk. Galatians 6.9-10 James 1.25 You will reap and you will be blessed. Go to um, Galatians 6.9. Galatians 6.9. And it was just interesting because this came popping out of Tuesday night's lesson and I had just been moved to write that blog. I'm, I'm exhausted. You know, where's the Spirit? And it's just that sort of question that um, people ask themselves. Galatians 6.9. <clears throat> Let us not lose heart in doing good. Again, there's been an awful lot on the activity of the spiritual life, actually doing, not just talking about doctrine or pontificating about Scripture, but actually doing good. Uh, for example, ministering to others was in view. For in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Okay? Do not grow weary. And I think it's fair to say that grow weary to the point where we just throw in the towel if we just stop 
uh, doing what we're doing, we will reap uh, in due time if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. Uh, I would guide you as well as your shepherd, um, especially this holiday season towards those that are of the faith. Pay special attention to them. Um, we have to stick together, and I think that's what the Spirit's been saying. I think DJ and I were talking about that this past week, that um, there's strength in unity. There's strength in family. You know, like uh, Solomon says, two chords, three chords. Um, there's strength in doing what we're doing even right now, that gathering together this way. Um, now compare that with James 1.25. Go there, James 1.25. We'll just synthesize these things. And this, again, is from Tuesday evening's message, and it made me giggle just because of what I had written on Wednesday, the day before I caught up this morning. Uh, James 1.25, But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, there's that activity again, this man will be blessed in what he does. So doing, uh, not growing weary, uh, results in blessing. And that's challenging sometimes. I mean, can I get an amen? I mean, it's challenging. Some days, some weeks, some months, some years, I get years. Anybody go for decades? <laughs> Somebody's like, life, life. <laughs> I've grown weary. And uh, it's okay. It's okay. When you read the blog, you'll understand uh, what the Spirit's trying to convey even more so to you. But you'll be blessed if you don't quit, in other words. Again, this is how we arrive at the principle on the board. If you continue in His Word, the truth will set you free. This is especially true when you are a doer of the truth. It will set you free deliver you in your daily walk. You will reap and you will be blessed. So says Scripture. Now here's an excerpt from the blog you'll be receiving on Saturday, the one I wrote before I reviewed this Tuesday's lesson. Up here on the board, it's just an excerpt. Again, the title is, I'm Exhausted, Where's the Spirit? The truth is that we may be both tired and walking by the Spirit. The implication is that while the Spirit empowers us to press on, since we're human, we grow tired from physical, emotional, and spiritual exertion. As believers, God demands that we employ ourselves as God's fellow workers, 1 Corinthians 3.9. However, the Bible never states that we are immune to fatigue even when filled by the Spirit. In fact, it says just the opposite. That's right. God the Holy Spirit will empower you to step out on faith. And you will be tired. You will be fatigued. You don't think Jesus Christ was tired on the cross? Did He have the Spirit? Was He always filled? Absolutely. You don't think He was tired? You don't think His ministry wore Him down once in a while? How about Paul? How about John? How about Peter? How about any disciple throughout the ages that's doing God's good work? And that's what that blog was really meant to do, was sort of say, cut all this garbage out. 
that somehow it's unholy or you're missing out on the filling of the Spirit if you're tired doing His good work. I read the Bible and I say, if you're doing His good work, guess what? You're going to be tired. It just says, don't quit. Finish the course. So I was giggling because it was coming from the pulpit as I was writing, obviously. One obvious reason for the emphasis on don't grow weary from the Spirit as of late is directly related to how I began class on Sunday morning. Put these things together. Luke eleven seventeen part B, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. Our enemies are constantly plucking at all of us, constantly getting us to drop our guard, constantly trying to seduce us away from the family. All this effort on households, all this effort on family. He's constantly trying to break us down. He's constantly, it's almost like water up against, you know, a, a barrier. He's just trying to erode the family. And this is a family. It's a microcosm of the larger family, the body of Christ. But this, even this local assembly, this local family is a family. And he's doing everything in his power to erode it. Everything. So here's what I see in the plainest of speak. We are all under constant pressure from the world. We ought not be surprised, for Jesus warned us. Go to John 15.20. John 15.20. We're under constant pressure from the world. John 15.20. And I've heard people postulate, oh, well, the only reason you're tired because you're, quote, walking in the flesh. That's garbage. That's garbage doctrine from the pit of hell. It keeps people from actually doing anything. Where does it say that in Scripture? If it said it, I'd teach it. I guess Jesus was a moron. Paul was a moron. The apostles, when they got tired, they must have been in there so-called flesh. No, we get tired. Nowhere in Scripture does it say we're not supposed to get tired. There's one thing about God's power, God the Holy Spirit's power in our lives. Yeah, it certainly is a certain power in our lives. But there's also the plain fact in Scripture that when we do His will, when we labor for Him, we grow tired. And it's okay. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. What I see is the Spirit simply encouraging us to press on, even as we grow weary. This is hard work. We live in the triangle. We live a... We live, frankly, as far as I know, and I've been to every United, every state in the, in the Union, so to speak, uh, and stayed in each one. It's got a sort of a flavor, a taste of the culture. This is awful here. In terms of uh, spiritual warfare, it's just awful. The people here are awful. I'm not saying all is lost. I'm not saying there's not hope that there aren't people that still want truth because I know there are. 
But on a, as a whole, Massachusetts and New England, it's awful. And so <laughs> we're running and swimming upstream, and we have to paddle really hard, and we become and grow weary. But we can't quit. That's the whole point. We can't quit. So I see the Spirit simply encouraging us to press on, even as we grow weary. And I was just thinking about, um, you know, like a metal spring? You remember like a slinky or any spring that you might have had? Uh, I was thinking about us as sort of a metal spring. On one end, we are connected to the immovable rock, Jesus Christ. On the other end, we have the weight of the world connected to us. And there's a persistent force tugging on us, stretching us, if you would. By grace, God increases the strength of our spring, which means we are able to bear increasingly heavy loads without overstretching. You know what I'm talking about? If you've had a, a metal slinky, you know what happens when you overstretch it? It's no good anymore. Right? It has that big warped centerpiece, and it doesn't go down the stairs anymore. It's just toast. You can, It's just uh, string, or excuse me, uh, spring uh, dynamics 101. You can overstretch a spring, and then it's useless. But the beauty of God is, he says, I'll give you enough to never overstretch. But the Word of God never says you're not going to be stretched, or you're not going to be tired from stretching. You're human after all. The greater the load we bear, the greater the glory to God. Up here on the board, most of you know this scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Doesn't say that there's nothing to endure. The implication is there's something to endure. That there's a strain on you, but he's never going to allow you to overstretch. So even though we may be stretched thin, God ensures that we'll never be stretched beyond what we are able to bear with the help of the Holy Spirit, of course. However, we also know that God likes to continue to bring glory to himself by strengthening us and then turning around and adding more weight. In other words, as we mature, so to speak, you can imagine the spring itself becoming thicker and thicker and stronger and stronger and able to bear more weight. And the more weight you're able to bear, the greater the trials, if you'd like to think of it that way, um, the more glory to God. Because that's a, really an exertion or an extension of His grace uh, that's visible to the world. We also know that God likes to continue to bring glory to Himself by strengthening us and then turning around and adding more weight. In one sense, we might imagine that we'll always have some strain on us until the day we die or are raptured. What the world would have us do is ignore God's grace and become overstretched as a result of our own arrogance. There comes a time even for a believer that if this happens to such a severe degree, God will, for lack of a better term, kill them, take them out. We call that the sin unto death. 
up here in the void. John 5.16, there is a sin that leads to death. The Bible states that God will ordain death for one of His own children if they continue in sin. We don't know exactly the boundaries, only that the sin unto death exists. So it's, it can happen to, I guess, technically any believer. If a believer gets overstretched, he'll take you out. If you're no longer bringing glory to God somehow, some way, and you're one of His own, He has the right to take you out. I don't perceive anyone in here like that. I don't discern that we have that kind of a problem in the congregation where people are going to start dropping. <laughs> I hope not. Unless you're hiding something so severe that... The sin unto death would be like a person, in keeping with our spring analogy, snapping under load. At that point, the spring is useless in bringing glory to God, so he simply removes it. Back to our point, though. Satan is trying to break us, all of us, at every possible joint in the body. We are a body, after all. That's why we're called the body of Christ. And it's okay to think of the analogy to a human body. Satan's trying to, you know, you know in like karate, if you just hit someone just the right way, at just the right angle, you can break their bone. You can pop something out of, out of joint. And it doesn't take a whole lot of um, force, just technique. And Satan's constantly trying to make the body disjointed, constantly adding pressure at just the right place to try to cripple the body. I mean... One of the things, not that I'm violent like this, but as I understand it, one of the first things you do if a monster of a human being is coming after you, you either kick him in the groin or you kick him in the knee as hard as you can. And the knee will fold and that person will go down. So you can take a, down a very large individual if you hit them at the right way, at the right joint. So by grace, God has given individual believers specialized abilities. The Bible calls these, of course, spiritual gifts, one of which is performing by the Spirit for you right now. Go to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. And keep in mind that Satan is trying to get us disjointed, trying to pop joints out of the body, constantly adding pressure, constantly trying to... Uh, what do you call it, dislocate a joint, a shoulder, an elbow, or a finger, or a knee, or what have you. Ephesians 4.11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, that's one office there, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the, what, building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, Satan's trying to sow disunity, but the Bible uh, portrays unity. The building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into Him 
who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. And you, you see what you see this analogy in full bloom here, even in Scripture, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. What a tremendously edifying passage, because it really does highlight that we all have a purpose in the body, and that Satan's constantly trying to pluck out individuals. That's all I see as a shepherd this individual, that individual, then the next person, then the next person. As I said on Sunday, they're drifting out to sea, and they're like, oh, hey, pastor. Oh, hey, family. Oh, I didn't realize that far. Oh, I'll be good. And they drift out, and then they go, what happened? What do you mean, what happened? I was blowing the whistle. I've been back on the, on the beach blowing the whistle as hard as I could, saying, wake up, wake up. What Paul was explaining to the Ephesians in that passage was that as a body, we are held together by individual parts, each of us, quote, supplying connectivity and support as, quote, joints do in a human body. Imagine a human body without any tendons or ligaments. Just those are the things that hold bones together. Just imagine a human body without any tendons or ligaments. You'd have a pile of bones. This is what Satan desires. He wants us to become a pile of bones. It's really hard for a pile of bones that's supposed to be a walking, ambulating body to do anything. There's certainly no unity. A house divided cannot stand, you see. So all the Spirit's been saying from this joint, this vessel, is don't give the devil the opportunity. Don't give the devil the opportunity. We noted this very concept on Sunday as well, and it's just around the corner from our current passage. Go to verse 25. It's right around the corner. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Up here in the board. Do not give the devil an opportunity. How, how might we do this? This is from uh, past lesson. We forget, quote-unquote, about the Lord who has shown us grace. Our eyes are diverted from Christ. And since we cannot multitask, we have opened the door up to Satan. We have opened the door up to Satan. Therefore, we weaken as joints when we allow Satan to cause divisions in the body. We weaken. And we weaken, frankly, the whole body. Everybody in here has a purpose. Everybody seems to look at for natural reasons, the guy behind the pulpit. And it's true, uh, you saw that on Sunday as well. Imitate his faith, okay, I get it. But I'm only one joint. I'm only one member of the body. I can't do everything, God knows that. 
you're all members. Maybe, I mean, I don't know, maybe just you being here tonight is encouraging to me. Maybe it's encouraging to the people, maybe it's encouraging to the people on your left and your right. Maybe it's encouraging the people in the congregation that you've never actually had a real conversation with. But they see you and they're encouraged by your presence. But what if we all start just saying, eh, I don't care about encouraging. I don't care what Scripture says about, as long as it's called today, encourage one another. I don't care about that stuff. I'm just going to drift out a little bit, and Satan's going, yeah, drift out, because we're almost there, we're almost there. Pop! You're out of joint. Okay, next, almost there, almost there. Pop! You're out of joint. Pop! And what happens if everybody's out of joint? What about the body? It's going to be a mess. I was reflecting on this. My days are chock full of instance after instance of seeing the God of this world trying to separate the brethren. Some days on um, like social networks, I can't even take it. I, honestly, I just can't even take it. It's awful. It's terrible. The things that people are saying and doing, and, and these are the people supposedly in the body. It's almost like this arm's hacking on this arm. And this arm's poking this one in the eyeball. Right? And this one's kicking itself in the butt. You know, like, uh, was that Three Stooges? Anyways. Right? It's ridiculous. And that's what I see. I just see instance after instance of the God of this world separating people, separating the brethren. To say he doesn't rest is an understatement. Because he doesn't. And he's got one-third of the angels. And they don't sleep either. So to say he doesn't rest is an understatement. I see his fingerprints everywhere. And sadly, all over the bodies of believers even. And it's just awful. Ask yourselves if you were... Sorry, men, but just pretend for a moment. Ask yourselves if you were a married woman. Would you allow a stranger to touch you all over whenever and however he felt like it? And what might your husband think about that? Just imagine if you're that woman. What might your husband think about that? Then, frankly, why do we allow the God of this world and his agents to fondle us right in front of our true husband, Jesus Christ? Because that's what the Bible says. That's what we do. This is what it means to, quote, give the devil an opportunity. Don't let him touch you. You're Christ's body. He's the head. We're the body. Don't let him touch you. Don't let him flirt with you. <laughs> Don't let him touch you. Because that's how it starts. Oh, he's such a kind guy. I'm serious. I'm serious when I say this. Don't let him touch you. That's giving the devil an opportunity. We give in to things like anger and strife, slander and gossip. Those are the devil's fingerprints. That's how we know that his hands have been on us. 
we start talking like the world. We start acting like the world. And the more we do so, the weaker individuals become in the body as we tear each other down. We let ungodly people into our, quote, inner circles. And when we aren't looking, they are mutilating the joints in the body. And Paul fought tooth and nail against this. Go to Galatians 5.12. Galatians 5.12. Why do you think, folks, why do you think, and you don't have to know me personally, but if you do, you know that this same truth holds true in my own house. Why do you think I'm so, def- so defensive? Uh, I shouldn't say, um, so protective of this flock. Why? Because I know what I see. I don't want anybody. I'd rather have just you guys for the rest of my life not have another individual join the church than have something or someone awful allowed to put their hands on you. Galatians 5.12 I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. That was Paul's feeling on the topic. Yeah, I wish that those who are troubling you, those who are you know, spiritually putting their hands on you, leaving their fingerprints on the body of Christ, that they would even mutilate themselves. That's how Paul feels about it. That's how I feel about it right now. That's why I'm so protective. I don't want anybody touching you, people. Especially not, certainly not from this world, in other words. Galatians 5.13 For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. I think I taught a lesson years ago on cannibalism, (laughs) and this was part of it. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. This is the Spirit's warning. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. The flesh says, I'm a tramp. Go ahead, touch me. Put your hands all over me. Fondle me. I don't care. Jesus can see me. He's my true husband, but I don't care. Go ahead, lay your hands all over me. That's the flesh. The flesh is a hoe. (laughs) It's true. If we're going to talk plain speak, it's very true. Don't give that thing the opportunity. Don't give the devil the opportunity, because the new creature doesn't want anything to do with Satan, doesn't want him any, anywhere near, is chast when it comes to those things. says, no way, mister, hands off. The flesh, tramp. So what do you think the Spirit's saying? Don't give that flesh the space. Don't let the flesh frolic, flirt. Engage with Satan. 
and our enemies. You can never let your guard down on your enemies, for they are like water surrounding a submarine. If even a small crack emerges, they are getting in. And they don't care if you're tired of standing post. As I stated on Thursday, do not forget that the demons don't sleep. On Sunday, we considered the analogy to an undercurrent even. That people get familiar. They think, oh, that's just pastor being paranoid. You know, that's his job. He's supposed to protect us. And he's, you know, he's saying, oh, I'm going to whack you with the rod again. No, that's ridiculous. That's you being familiar. That's you becoming complacent. No one sets out to drown. However, undercurrents can easily take a person from a place of safety to danger. They are the sinister darkness that far too few consider as they frolic in the sun. Lifeguards may blow whistles, but still, people drown all the time. Why? They let their guards down. Giving the devil an opportunity typically begins with, excuse me, our guard being let down. That's usually how it starts. What, what does a, what is a uh, un, unholy, ungodly seducer do, typically? They wear you down. They wear you out until you let the guard down. And the next thing you know, they got their hands all over you. You see, that's how we give the devil an opportunity. We let him wear us down. When the Word says, don't grow weary of doing good. Don't give the devil an opportunity. What do I see? Pretty much the opposite. Certainly outside of this, these four walls, every so-called Christian is a complete hoe. You can laugh a little bit if you want. It's all right. I'm trying to keep you a little loose because it's a serious topic. I would use different language if I wanted to keep it less light because everybody's like, Giving the devil an opportunity typically begins without letting our guard down, which, practically speaking, often means that we begin tolerating things in our lives that we shouldn't. We're tired, so what do we do? I don't feel like fighting that fight. I, I can, you know, as a parent, that's what typically comes to mind immediately. It's really tough being a good parent because kids have more energy than you do in general. And they have a much smaller envelope of life to think about, so they're like strategizing a little bit. You know what I'm getting at? And you're like, ah, here we go again. But you've got to fight it. Why? To keep your own household in order. So that Satan's not given that opportunity, that we're not giving the devil an opportunity to divide a house. Because a house divided, as Jesus said, what? Falls. That's what I do here. That's why I've said this to you in the past. I feel like you're the father in the house in the sense that I'm constantly looking for those things. I don't want to give the devil an opportunity. And trust me, he is knocking at every door and every window here. And he's trying to get through the vents. I'm telling you, it's incredible. The stuff that goes on, even in a church that's only this size. I mean, it's not like it's a giant church by any means. 
So giving the opportunity to the devil is really, or it really begins with letting our guard down. And that typically and often means that we begin tolerating things in our lives that we shouldn't. And the next thing we know, we're playing, you know, two games. Well, there's the spiritual life and then there's this other life. When I'm with Jesus, oh, Jesus, you're my husband, I love you, oh. And then when you're in the world, you're groping with some other moron, and he's got his hands or she's got her hands all over you, and it's disgusting and despicable, and the next thing you know, you're playing this game. Why? That's how it goes. Starts off with a little flirting. Next thing you know, you're in bed together. Jesus Christ going, what's going on here? Oh, I can handle it. And I'm talking spiritually now, but I'm using the graphic example, of course. That's exactly what happens. We begin playing two games. We are not designed to function as double-minded joints in the body of Christ. For what good is a human body with a pig's knee installed? Seriously. Let me explain my last statement. Some of you are like, what? Go to James 1, 2. What good is a human body with a pig's knee installed? James 1, 2. So we're going to get tested. The Spirit's saying, don't grow weary. Expect it. I'm going to empower you, but you're still going to get tired. Expect it. Carry on. James 1.2 Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces <coughs> excuse me, endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith, without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a dipsukos. Remember we did all that good work on that. A double-souled or double-minded man. And what's the result of that, being a double-minded person, a person who says, I'm going to, you know, uh, be married or betrothed to Jesus, but be a hoe? What, what about that person? They're unstable in all their ways. That's what Scripture says. You want to play that game? You're going to be unstable. So, what good is a human body with a pig's knee installed? And just to be humorous for a moment, What's it going to look like if I jump off this stage right now with a pig's knee installed and I run down the aisle? Now imagine it. It's going to be foolish looking, right? How stable do you think my knee is going to be? And likewise, how might that affect the rest of this 200-pound body as it goes about this endeavor of running down the aisle? Sounds like a crude example, but you get the picture, don't you? We're all joints. We're all parts of this body. But what if some of us are pigs? 
How's the body going to function? Isn't that the analogy? Jesus warned us of a fundamental issue. We saw this on Sunday as well. 1 Corinthians 10, 21-22 You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord in the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? When you're off doing this little side dance, the Lord sees everything. And we have a jealous God. You do the math. Last week, the capstone statement on this was humans cannot multitask, even though we think we can. Up here on the board. But this is how Satan sows discord in the body. He seduces us into thinking that we can when we can't. Seduces us into thinking we can have our eyes on Christ and our eyes on the world at the same time, and we can't. It's a game we play, and he's just trying to separate you because eventually the amount of time you used to be like, you know, 95-5. Then a week goes by, it's 90-10. Then it's 80-20. You see, Satan knows how this game is played out. Then it's 50-50. And the next thing you know, la, 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 la. Usually around 50-50, from my perspective, is when I don't see you, or you start fading away from the church body. That's usually what I would estimate around 50-50. I can see it happening. Then I see, you know, the 10, 90-10, 20-80, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Then around 50-50, all of a sudden, people's dedication to the fundamentals even start changing. Now they stop coming to church. They stop reading the blog, the next thing you know, next thing I get a long email. Hasta la vista. What? Did you hear me blowing the whistle? This is how it goes, my friends. Seen it played out way too many times. I've only been at this less than, a little less than a decade. It just keeps playing. It's like a broken record. It just keeps playing out. Playing out. If our attention is diverted to something ungodly, it cannot be on Christ where it's supposed to be. It's that simple. It's that simple. So what the Spirit's saying, high level, is don't grow weary. Keep your eyes on Christ. Keep doing the things, the good work, as a joint labor, as a fellow laborer with God. Don't grow weary. As the Spirit cautioned all of us, starting with the leaders in this church even, Satan is constantly attacking all divinely ordained institutions. Most people call it out as, you know, self, marriage, family, nation, something like that. Don't get hung up on it. But you know there are divinely ordained institutions. Arguably in America, at least, the most identifiable systematic attacks seem to be contemporarily on marriage and family. That's how I see it being, that's how I see it going down. That systematically in America, I can only speak for America, I don't know what other countries are like specifically. I kind of know, but not intimately. 
in America, marriage and family is under uh, a complete assault from the very highest offices in our government even. Complete assault. And it's really about it's really about sowing discord. It's really about plucking the body of Christ apart at the seams. Knocking joints out of whack. Take the head of a household out, the entire family's like, what do we do now? The woman's like, I'm supposed to respond to you. You just completely left me high and dry. What am I, what, what am I supposed to do now? Thank God that God's merciful and gracious and will help that person out. But think about what Satan's doing. He's licking his chops. He's like, if I can take the head of the household out, heck, I got the, the wife, I got the kids. The kids are like, well, what's going on now? Now what? You got young girls? Well, I guess I'm going to marry a jackass that leaves. Young boys, I guess I'm going to grow up and be a, like my dad, a jackass. Isn't that what happens? You don't have to be a psychologist to realize that's what happens. That's what we call daddy issues. I taught a whole series on it. You call that daddy issues. Oh, my daddy fondled me when I was a kid. So now I have no respect for men. I have no self-worth because my father was a jackass, was a pervert. This is what we're doing. This is what Satan says. This is what Satan promotes. It's second nature. Same-sex marriages that, that have kids. How's that work? The whole thing is ridiculous, people. Ridiculous. And it's all to sow discord. It's all to pop whatever joint possible out so that the body of Christ is... You know, limping along. That's what I see anyways. So this, this is all the importance of how, and this emphasis that the Spirit's been giving from this pulpit on how to even to manage our households. This is what this is all about. It wasn't to focus specifically on any one issue. We didn't go heavily into the doctrine of the household. But here's what he gave us. A household is basically its occupants. Anybody in the house. You live there, you guess what you're part of. You're part of the household. That's husband, wife, children. Doesn't matter your age because if you're living there, you're part of the household. These people are supposed to be held to the biblical standard within the household. I didn't say that. We looked at all the scripture, 1 Timothy 3, 4 to 5 for pastors, 1 Timothy 3, 12 to 13 for deacons, and you're all supposed to imitate my faith. So we're all in this hook. Not because he's just trying to, <laughs> he's not trying to um, compress us unnaturally into some institution that's going to be painful or agonizing. No, not at all. He's saying, this is the way I designed it. And if you let Satan in, if you give the devil an opportunity, he's going to do everything in his power to blow all that stuff up. And if, you, if you're a, a, a man that's a husband and a father, you know exactly who he's heading for. You know exactly who he's going after. He's going to go after, if he can manage to get that guy beside himself, he's got the entire family in disarray. 
I mean, it's one of the reasons we've had men's conferences. So that men could get together in the congregation and talk about, what are you seeing? What do you see? This is ridiculous. What are the attacks you see? How about we all bear up and, 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 uh, and, and join forces and hook arms as men in the congregation and say, uh-uh. We're not going to let Satan divide our households, and we're not going to let Satan divide this household. What do you think the men's conference is about? You think we go there and drink Bud Light? I don't even allow drinking. There's no, there's no booze allowed at the men's conferences. I don't want any drunkenness. That's dissipation. We got, we're getting about serious things. Why? Because this is a serious fight. So the Spirit hasn't been exactly been light-footed on this topic of the household. Here's why. Anything that takes one of God's children away from His will for them, good, bad, or ugly, that's the definition of temptation. Anything that's designed to take you away from God's will. For example, if you become a slave to the blessing rather than the one who blesses, consider yourself as having fallen. However, do not despair. Lamentations 3.23 is faithfulness is renewed every morning. Proverbs 24.16. Don't despair. Anything, though, that takes you away from God's will. Anything. And I think, uh, I can't believe I'm almost out of time. I think some people, frankly, lose sight of godliness altogether when it comes to their own, their own households. I think some people lose sight of godliness when it comes to their own households, not others, their own. I'll even stretch my neck out here a bit and say that in my personal experience, the greatest area of partiality is within the household. That's my personal experience, where I've seen the greatest amount of partiality. It's in the household. The things, the people, and the ideas even. The ideas even. Well, the people even, that we allow to flow freely through our households, are an abomination to God. They're an abomination. And we're like, yeah, just come right on in. Come right on in. You got a trumpet to blow? Come on, yeah, just bring your instrument. Come in, the, come in there and blow the trumpet of ungodliness as loud as you want in my living room. And everybody's like, eh, whatever. I get the same trumpet pumping through a 65-inch flat screen all day, so what difference does it make? One's in the flesh, one's recorded flesh. And people are like, oh my God, seriously, dude? We're going back to the, what, the 50s? You're going to be like this ultra-conservative pastor guy? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? This is, I'm not even close to being what Jesus would do, what he's thinking. I'm not even close. If, if I was Paul, I'd be probably frothing at the mouth. I'm serious. The stuff we allow in our households. Why? Because we're partial. But I like them. What the heck, what's that going to do with anything? If you like them. Anyways. My question is, and I've got to close in a little bit. Why are we not more like Jesus? Just ask yourself that. 
Why are we not more like Jesus, who, when he saw people doing business in his father's house, you know, the temple, but it's still the house institution, when he saw people doing business, making a mockery, if you would even, of his father's house, he responded violently. Why are we not more like that? Go to uh, John 2.13. John 2.13. Why do we not protect our own homes the way Jesus protected his fathers? Seriously. Why do our kids not protect our home the way the Father does? Isn't that what Jesus was doing? Seriously. John 2.13. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at the tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is a violent display, a violent expression from a perfect man. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. When's the last time a kid came into one of our households and said, Cut it out. This is bull. This is not going to work. This house is supposed to be serving the Lord. When's the last time one of your kids did that? When's the last time one of my kids did that? Why is nobody offended? Where's the zeal for the Lord? Where's the zeal for the Lord? His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Up here on the board. <coughs> zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus refused to tolerate irreverence toward his father in his father's house, the temple. He refused it. Do you have this same zeal? Or do you tolerate irreverence because of partiality or weakness, etc.? You pick. Who's protecting the houses? That's the big question. What do you think I'm doing right now? I'm upset. Every day I hear about more ridiculousness in this house. Every day. You bet I have zeal. You bet I feel like I've said it before, right? Like flipping the, flipping the pulpit over. Why? Because it's irritating. It's an abomination, the stuff that happens. What about your house, though? Do you have that zeal? Who are you letting in your house? What kind of ideas are you letting go into your ear gate, your eye gate? Who are you letting sit at your kitchen table and sow all kinds of grotesque things? Who are you letting into your bed? Where's the zeal? Do you understand? Where's the zeal? Nobody's got it anymore. You got a bunch of wimps for fathers and husbands. I don't even want to call them men. They're males. You got a bunch of oh, women that, are, that want to be men, that, that really, in truth be told, hate women because they want to be men. So whenever a young female comes in, they, 
They say, let's hate women. Let's try to be like men. Don't be a woman the way God designed you. Be like men. Oh, man. And the husband's like, I'm good with that. Just give me the remote. Give me the red zone. You know, red zone's that football thing. I want all eight channels. Give me. The, you guys can do whatever you want. Hey, look it. I'll take my pants off right here. You can wear them, honey. And show these new young girls that came into your house, into our house. Show them how to wear pants too. I'm speaking figuratively. Just leave me alone. Cause I'm a wimp. Does that sound like Jesus to you? And that Jesus was the kid in the situation. Does that sound like Jesus to you? That's what the Spirit's trying to say. He's like, if you don't have this zeal, and Satan's got all zeal for what he's doing, so you got no zeal for God, you got Satan who's got incredible zeal, and his agents of light who have incredible, persistent, unsleeping, not a word, zeal, right? And what do we have? If no one's protecting the house, what do we have? This is going to be like overrun. That's what the Spirit's saying. Where's, where's our zeal anymore? What about, what about, and it starts with the men. I have no problem saying that. I've said it for years. I'll go to my grave saying it. 90% of the problems in the household are the men. Easy 90%. Why? Because it all starts with us. And if we're a wimp and we got no backbone and we got no zeal for the Lord, guess what? What kind of example are we setting? Our poor wives have nothing to respond to because we're a sackless heap of bones. They have nothing to respond to. So now the entire dynamic that was set back in the garden is upset. And we haven't even talked about the kids. If the head of the household doesn't have a zeal for the Lord, what do you expect out of the kids? You're their example. You're the one who raises them up. What do you expect out of the kids if the father and the husband doesn't have any zeal for the Lord in the household? What do you expect? Amen? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for this privilege. Thank you for being honest with us always. Thank you for correcting us. Thank you for giving us scripture to do that heavy lifting in our souls. Thank you for imparting the Spirit to us to convict us on these things so that it's inescapable and that we are without excuse. And even though we're pressed down, we're not crushed, Father. We're so very grateful by the grace that you continue to pour out on us in love. We ask for your blessings as we take everything we've learned here this evening out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.